Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. I snuck another look at myself in the rear view. I still looked like me, mostly, but the pale face staring back was different enough that I couldn't quit peeking at myself, trying to get used to what I was seeing. I reminded myself that even though I might look different, and even sound different, I was still the same old Frank Enfield, always looking to be more and know more. If that meant a paler mug, well, so be it. A jolt from a deep rut in the road pulled my eyes back onto the road where they belonged. The car shambled through the narrow, snow-locked mountain pass like a dying cockroach over a road that was nothing but a glorified footpath. The road was lined with a dense wall of black pine that hid most of the daylight, and one wrong swerve would pitch me into a steep gorge to my left or crash me into the mountainside on the other. It didn't help that it was close to sunset, and I still had a lot of miles to put at my backside before I got to a remote abbey with the unlikely name of Rook's Folly. The plan was to bunk with the monks that ran the place for however long it took to find and secure what I was after, and beat it back stateside. Locals told me the abbey was in an empty part of a country I'd never even heard of two days ago, and had been the mountain stronghold in bygone times of some mad prince or warlord, or whatever they called them in those parts. The original monks, the story went, had stormed the place when the old lunatic had been captured by a mob of villagers brandishing torches and pitchforks and sent to his just rewards, headless, on the end of a pike. Word was the monks parsed through the guy's vast library, looking for works of the devil, The guy had plenty of them, by all accounts, and the monks had locked it all away from prying eyes while, no doubt, prying closely with their own beady little eyes. They'd set up a small cadre back then to guard the trove, and these guys were their descendants. The order of monks had been keeping watch over the place for over 300 years. In all my time, I've never come across anything like any kind of devil, at least not as it's usually meant anyway but vast libraries of questionable origin and nefarious usage. Well, that I knew from hell to Sunday, and of course, that's exactly what I was after. The old prince had been legendary for his unbridled depravity and monstrous treatment of the village folk. There's always been stories like that, from Dracula to Countess Bathory, and I think most of it's just bunk. The usual flack against the powers that be and their cruel treatment of John Q. Public 
Stories like that tend to take on a life of their own, given the chance to ferment over the years, and soon enough everybody's sporting horns and a tail. As swell as the view was around here, Spidey had my hackles up as we got deeper into those dark woods. The snow came and went, and sometimes the shadows fell at funny angles, snaking across the road where shadows ought to just lay there quiet-like. There was movement among the trees too sometimes, and I decided to chalk that up to deer maybe, or wolves. I'd seen nothing but trees for hours, not even a woodman's shack, and the road ended on top of the mountain at the abbey itself, where there was nothing but a bunch of guys who'd shut themselves off from the world to contemplate whatever it is guys like that contemplate while steering clear of all the stuff that keeps life interesting for the rest of us, like dames. I paused in my story long enough to catch my breath and let what I was saying sink in, for them that was listening, which brought me back to the last time I'd seen the librarian. That had been a week ago, and I still couldn't cipher exactly what had happened back then. I'd taken Martine with me back to the librarian's lair to deliver the accursed score to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Actually, it was Martine who'd fished the thing out of her purse and delivered it into the librarian's huge waiting hands. I knew the play. Martine was going eye-to-eye and toe-to-toe with him, and proving she had as much right to be on his payroll as I did. And that I firmly believed. I just had no idea how he was going to take it, unannounced as her arrival was and all. But then, he was the librarian, and if nothing else, he always left me guessing. Oh, enchanté. My dear, dear Miss Saint Laurent. How charming. The librarian had cooed, slipping the score into his pocket as he slid Martine's hand to his lips and kissed it, his eyelashes actually fluttering as a broad grin lit up his pale, gaunt face. The thing is, though, I'd never told him about her, much less her name. But then, that was the librarian. Please, call me Martine. She replied in that silky New Orleans drawl that always made me weak in the knees. Taking the snifter of cognac from his hand, which had mysteriously appeared from somewhere, Martine smiled like a shy schoolgirl, and I knew the librarian was in for it. Oh, you are just too kind to an old man, mademoiselle. Absolutely too kind. And that frock, just too chic. Something new from Paris, perhaps. Their heads bent together, her arm curled in his, and he led her to the sofa where they sat down knee to knee and seemed to forget I was even in the room. They started chattering in excited whispers that erupted now and then in laughter that made me bristle. I just sat there, staring at the pair of them. Then, somehow, like an afterthought, the librarian communicated my marching orders. I was looking for a chess set this time, somewhere in the Bavarian Alps. Plane tickets, a suitcase containing local currency, a map, and a couple of changes of skivvies sat next to the door. The specifics. Find the monks at Rook's Folly and abscond with some chess set they were hiding. Friendly-like, if possible, but by whatever means necessary if they wanted to play hardball. And that was about it. Take it away, Frankie boy. Exit stage left. So, there I was, carving my way up a steep grade through a blizzard somewhere in the mountains and hoping that was the worst leg of the trip. 
but knowing that wasn't likely. I'd never had the kind of lucky breaks other folks seemed to get in life, and that was fine. I'm proud of working my fingers to the bone for every scrap that comes my way. Least I know it's mine, and I've earned it. I paused again to toss back the last of my drink and wait for another to take its place. Naturally, I thought of Martine. My girl. My one and only. And the librarian? Did they already know each other? Had he sussed her out through the ethers? Had he been waiting for her to show up all this time? What did that mean for old Frank Enfield? Did Martine pose some kind of threat to my place in the scheme of things? Nah. Just couldn't be. I had to muster something I could use instead of faith and trust. Yeah. Trust the librarian that everything was copacetic. As far as Martine, I trusted her with my damn life and everything in it. I knew she'd never ace me out of the scene. Yeah, everything was going to be okie dokie. What about Maurice, though? Was the kid going to turn up in Hudson, too? I continued my tale. I'd slammed on the brakes as a huge buck appeared in the road ahead of me. His rack must have been... Hell, I don't know. He was huge. Just stared at me for a second. His sides heaving and his breath hanging in the air. Then he was gone, and after my wits returned... I continued up the mountain. My eyes glued to the road. I let the growing ball of dread in my gut get the best of me and figured I'd better not ignore it. It was more than just a dark, unfamiliar road through parts unknown that had me twisted up. Something wasn't right, and I breathed a sigh of relief when the dark turrets of the recommissioned castle finally broke over the tops of the trees and the vast expanse of Rook's Folly loomed dead ahead like a leviathan out of the ethers daring me to come one step closer and face my doom like a man. A sense of dread surrounded the place like a noxious mist, and I realized my palms were sweaty despite the cold, and my stomach was in knots. What the hell had I got to be spooked about? I'd actually said it out loud. I'd come a long way from that green pup who'd partnered with Doug Cartwright, and even back then I'd already thought I was the bee's knees in the ways of Hex and Juju. Since then, shit, some of what I've seen would send most any self-respecting juju man bawling for his mama. I'd been outside of the known order of things with coyote and crow men from the before there was anything times. After that, what the hell had I got to be spooked about? Truth be told, I was already a dead man thanks to somebody's some kind of magic. What in hell's tool shed or anywhere else was going to tell old Frank Enfield what for? A bunch of old monks? And yet, if I never made it to the front door of that monastery, you'd have got no argument out of me. But this wasn't any ordinary monastery. I could see that before I ever pulled to a halt. The jagged walls and a dozen wicked, spiraling turrets seemed just waiting for some evil queen to rise up and command her armies of pestilence to crush the huddled masses of the world below. But the monks who ran the place, they'd have cleaned this place up long ago. And hopefully there'd be a hot meal and a warm bed for me, at the very least. And if these were like any monks I'd ever known, there'd be a bottle of something smooth that went down hot, and I'd sleep like a baby tonight. It was all dark and silent, but I could imagine the joint in its heyday. I pulled up to the arched front door and killed the engine, but left the headlights on. 
The place could have been deserted for a hundred years, except for a faint glow from inside the door that gaped wide open. Something lay in the snow nearby, and I figured maybe it was a watchdog, except the thing didn't budge or sound off when I pulled up. I slid my hand into the glove compartment, drew out my revolver, and grasped it firmly in my hand. I could see it was no pooch laying there. Nobody had come out to see who I was, and Spidey held me back from honking news of my arrival. I eased up to the prone figure lying in the snow. It was a guy in monk's robes. His throat slit ear to ear, and the blood, a whole mess of it, spread out in the snow and already turned to ice. Hugging the wall with my backside, I eased my way slowly towards the front door. A huge wooden thing, almost a foot thick, fitted with iron rings. Shoving it all the way open with my foot, I eased inside. That's when I saw body number two, done up like the first one, lying there at my feet. The same M.O., throat slit. I stood there a moment, listening. Not a sound. So... I slid down the hall, back still pressed against the wall, my revolver at the ready, glad of the soft-soled boots I always wore for capers into unknown territory. Before I reached a huge stairway that corkscrewed downwards into the bowels of the place, I'd come across seven more bodies, all old guys like the first two. I figured the place must be running short on monks, and wondered how many there were left. The bodies were all ice-cold and no fires had been lit in any of the grates. The festivities must have finished up earlier in the day, and I hoped whoever's handiwork this was had already hightailed it. Across from the stairway was a big library. I didn't have time for the leisurely browse-through, but a quick glance told me this wasn't the sinister repository of dark tomes the place was noted for, and for which the monks were the guardians. A horrified scream echoed through the cavernous hull of the castle, and two voices exploded in a barrage of angry bellows. At first I couldn't make out where it was coming from with all the echoes. All I could tell was it was two voices, each vying with the other in an enraged litany of curses, the kind you only hear as incantations of the summoning variety. I looked around for any sign of movement, and then focused my spidey ear on the racket. It was coming from down that coiling monster of a staircase, that disappeared beneath the castle. It took me forever to make my way as silently as I could down the stairs, the darkness so thick it seemed to roil up from below, almost sucking the breath out of me as a foul, half-familiar stench filled the stairwell like some oily, infernal incense. Then it hit me. Seawater. Seawater that's gone bad, and all the stuff in it's died off and turned to rot. But how could there be seawater up here, unless there was some trapped dead sea in the guts of this mountain? But that didn't cipher somehow, not by a long shot. Another hideous scream skewered me like a knife, then broke off suddenly, and I knew the struggle below was finished, and one of the opponents was no more. At the bottom of the stairway I heard something heavy hitting the floor, most likely something that had been alive and kicking just seconds before. The hollow sound of crazed laughter killed the silence, and I knew our side, the monks who ran the joint, hadn't been the winners. At the end of a long hall lined with more books, ancient and crumbling and evil as sin from the looks of them, 
A pair of black carved doors that must have been ten feet high hung open. The faint glow of candlelight threw impossible shadows over the walls inside, while the green stench of putrid seawater and rotted things made me wretch. A slow drip, drip, drip into standing water created a deafening echo, and I raised my revolver, stealing myself for whatever abominations waited for me inside. Then I stepped sharply into the doorway and fanned the scene with my thirty-eight. The stink of fresh blood and old seawater was more than I could stand, but what I saw made me forget all that. Three deep stone steps, grooved from countless centuries of use, stood between me and some kind of grotto, man-made or natural I couldn't tell. It was a couple of hundred feet across and filled with green water several inches deep that was thick with growing things, plants pulsing with a faint putrescent glow swayed like seaweed, their long sinuous fronds tangling with each other in an obscene way and then pulling free with a low sucking sound. The smaller ones, better than knee-high, and bigger ones, my own height, and the tall, imposing ones that towered over the others like huge oaks. As they came into focus, they formed, looking natural, maybe. Probably not. They congealed and took solid form as I stood there and stared, finally making sense of it. Then I knew exactly what I was looking at, and I shook my head and let out a gasp. You've never before beheld such mystery, a hollow, unnatural voice bellowed, filling the cavern with echoes. And you never will again, unless you join with me. I grasped my gun in both hands and aimed it towards where the voice was coming from, on the other side of the grotto. Put that away. You won't need it here. And besides, such common vulgarian expressions of the baser pugilistic impulses will fail you miserably in such a place as this, and against one such as I. A moment, if you would, while I clear a path for you to come forth and greet me like a brother, face to face. I didn't think I heard the guy straight, but before I could say anything, there was the sound of water draining away somewhere, and the putrid pond that had filled the grotto was gone. Then I got a closer look at the monstrosities that had been swaying like swamp grass in front of me just seconds before. They were completely solid now, and looked to be carved of some blackened stone, half of them anyway. What I was looking at was a gigantic chess set, hideous with twisted spiraling tentacles each bore according to their rank, the black ones and the faintly glowing putrescent pinkish ones. This was the chess set I was after. But how the bloody hell? I took in the sight as quickly as I could before the bloke on the other side of the grotto had a chance to get the best of me. The pawns looked like a sort of gaping dog's muzzle, silently bellowing in some paroxysm of outrage and agony. The rook I saw instantly was the spitting image of the castle itself in miniature, its turrets and pinions grasping towards the heavens in a desperate, futile gesture, seeking what was anybody's guess. The knights looked a lot like what my buddy Maurice calls a ghoul steed, a thing formed of dead and rotted horse flesh that charges blindly into the fray of a foul fight, carrying its rider into perdition and hell's own courtyard. The bishop looked normal enough, I guess, except for the gaping hole in its chest that spewed a billowing spire of oily black smoke. 
but the king and queen were like nothing I could recognize. Their flaming tendril crowns filled with stars entwined amidst their size of either combat or some vile form of coupling. My lips curled, and I was breathing through my mouth as I shook my head to bring myself back to the matters at hand. The guy across the grotto shook with humorless laughter, and I jammed my gun into the back of my pants. Come, dear brother, come. Take your place beside me. It was an exact likeness of myself, if I'd lived rough for a few decades and never known a minute's peace. A twin. Somehow I knew, and Spidey backed my play on this, the guy was my brother true to rights, and not some glamour or a haunt fixed on setting me off my game. I sat down on the steps and pondered the situation. The guy looked unnatural somehow, wearing my face or some shade of it, and then I saw why. He ripped his face off and roared with laughter again. It was just a mask, a cheap carny trick. But without the mask, he looked even more like me. I jumped up and picked my way through the madness towards him, through the forest of chess pieces, most of which towered over my head. I knocked a couple of them out of my way, and they scattered over the checkered stone floor. The cult may not work on you, buddy, but these will, I guarantee. I yelled through my teeth as I balled up my fists and charged at him. We collided like two rams. Our fists pummeled each other and found purchase again and again. We were evenly matched, and every punch I landed he guarded, and I knew every punch he was going to try before he ever threw it, and still we did our best to turn each other into hamburger. Enough! He roared, shoving me aside when we both saw it was no use. Whatever juju the guy was packing, I was no match for it physically over a long dust-up so I dragged out Coyote's shade and disappeared into it before the guy could get another lock on me. I was getting pretty handy with that thing, and after a few seconds, I appeared back on the door side of the checkerboard and saw the guy nodding at me. You are worthy of being my brother, but you'd better be sorted out to be my ally than my foe. He waved a hand for me to sit down, and I really had no choice. I had a brother. I knew that for damn sure, and I wanted to know why I never knew about it before I sorted this guy's chain out and hung him from the rafters by it. Brother or no brother, evil shit like this doesn't get waved through the gate on Frank Enfield's watch. I already had all the family I needed down New Orleans way, and I wasn't taking any resumes. You mean to tell me all these years you couldn't feel me, Frank? Couldn't sense that a big part of you was missing? was out there somewhere growing stronger every day while you dabbled in porn magic and rag dolls, and then ended up as some old washed-up has-beens bagman, an errand boy, who knows what else? My hackles shot up. I was going to take this guy's throat out, first chance I got, but I needed to know more before I allowed myself that luxury. All the while you were wasting yourself out there, always satisfied with learning what other people were willing to teach you, Picking up the scraps off other people's tables, like that crow down in New Orleans. Always running from Mama and her Jesus. Never daring to push your wings and see where they take you under your own speed. Always asking permission. What the hell are you going on about now? You don't know me. I could feel the gathering blackness swelling in my belly like those old crow boys showed me out there in the beyond. I let it grow like a ball of black fire. No. The guy did not know me. 
I've been watching you. It amused me to do so. You ever wonder why our dear mother got rid of me when she did, when I was still just a tyke? No. That was the truth, since I hadn't even known he existed before the better part of ten minutes ago. She knew I had real power in these hands, and that terrified her. Just like you. You're pathetic. <laughs> he spat something into the muck on the floor. Who do you think it was sent her running to Jesus? Sounds like she made the right call, locking your sorry ass up from the looks of you. I nodded toward the ruined body of the monk. All that mess upstairs. You proud of that work, are you? I could see him bristle. You do what needs to be done to take what's yours. And if you can take it, it's yours. So, she put you in some loony bin, that it? What had you been doing, skinning cats and the like? I was stalling for time, and I could see he was rambling, but doing something else, too. The mists were gathering around him from the floor, and the blood from the monk's body was pooling strangely, shooting across the floor in patterns not at all random to the eye. Yeah, he was doing something all right, and there was a hell of a lot more blood on the floor than any one monk, or ten of them, could account for. It's not too late. You can still forget all this penny-ante-crap and join me. There's real knowledge out there in the world, and other places, too. Why spend your time doing somebody else's bidding? Why hand over every book of power you work so hard to procure to somebody else? That's madness! You're the one that's mad, not me! His fingers splayed out as the hideous stone chess pieces, first one, then the other, stretched and came to life again, and started waving their fronds and tentacles in the air as the mists and the blood flooded the floor of the grotto to more than a foot deep. Join me! There is no limit to what we could become together, with their aid! He screamed and gestured wildly towards the chess pieces. We would be as gods! Join me or die! Or go on living the meaningless second-rate life you've lived so far! It doesn't really matter to me! As the surging muck on the floor got deeper, the chess pieces grew taller, blossoming and pulsing like living flesh that burned a ruddy blush color. Then the pawns, their bodies twisted and destroyed dogs' heads, opened their mouths wide and screamed in agony or joy. I couldn't tell and didn't want to know. All the while the queens were sighing like a devil wind through the trees, and the kings just grew taller and taller, their crowns opening like talons, trying to claw their way through the ceiling above our heads. My brother creature just stood there in the middle like some demonic maestro, his arms stabbing at the air in a fiendish staccato, calling up who knows what. But whatever it was, I was growing something inside me too that was prepared to put it down. I figured whatever was human here wasn't likely going to make it out of here alive, and that was all right by me. If I was to end there, if whatever was blooming inside me in the darkness of my own soul was to swallow me up whole, then there was meaning to it, and a kind of peace, as long as it swallowed everything else here right along with me. I'd never grown up with a brother, never even knew I had one, and this thing that wore my face and spoke with my voice, well, all this was his doing and a bunch of monks were dead doing their job. That just didn't sit straight with me. Whatever ill will the creature might have for me, I was square with that. You're damn right I was. I've no idea what was taking hold of me down inside. It was neither good nor bad. It was just barreling headlong towards the surface from my own belly and from everywhere else at once. 
It was shiny and black and all nothingness, like a crow's tail feather as it breaks free and falls slowly from the sky. Across the checkerboard floor of the cavern I saw movement among the red mists, and I heard something too, a cadenced splashing, like something big and heavy was marching knee-deep through the Louisiana swamp. Then I saw it. First the pawns setting forth on their way, two steps first, forward, advancing towards me, their gaping mouths screeching like a horde of rabid banshees. One came up on my left side, and I kicked it, and it went rolling out of the way, squealing like a stuck pig. Then came the bishops, misshapen things my full height, pulsing a dull red like a dying heart, fumes and smoke shooting out of their chests like a train barreling headlong into hell. I jumped out of their way, and they just kept right on moving, sliding past me toward the corners of the chasm floor, soon lost from sight in the mists. I knew what was next. The knights set out on their peculiar course. Their bodies were nothing but a bashed-up and mangled horse's head, mouths dripping what looked like foam and blood, their deep, chant-like bellowing rattling the cavern and causing dust and small rocks to fall from the ceiling, splashing into the muck that was up past my knees now. They were easy enough to sidestep, even though they were all in play at once. But I knew I was far from in the clear. Rooks were next, of course, and they were more of a bother. I jumped around like a hopscotch princess to evade them, sliding in the slickness under my feet and almost landing on my face. Their towering fortress walls swayed over my head like fiery living crowns. Electricity sparking between them added an infernal buzzing to the racket, already drowning the place. I figured they were strategizing, maybe, figuring on how to take me down. The dance macabre the things wove across the cavern floor was a spectacle that made my jaw drop in awe as I stared at the wonder of it all, as the kings stood silent, continuing their battering at the ceiling. I shook my head, realizing some kind of glamour was trying to get a hold of me. Then I saw them full on for the first time. The queens. Weaving in their places against either wall, the queens who I knew somehow were the two sisters, ancient, wicked, and always hungry. They were at least a full twelve feet in height and looked like a pair of magnificent bayou cypress trees, thick moss hanging low, fluttering in the noxious air like green hair that snaked out towards me. The branches of those tree things groped for me like the arms of hideous but beautiful women, while their moss-like hair coiled around me, calling me to come in for the last embrace I'd ever know or want, promising me things no one should ever want. The rest of the pieces were just that, monsters, things that were brought to life by whatever magics ran this place, and helped along by my brother. But the queens, they were goddesses, full on like nothing that's got a right to exist in this or any other of a hundred and ten hells. Unlike the other pieces, from the pawns to the knights that slithered over the checkerboard in their natural course, the queens seemed to be root-bound, twisting and writhing in place, struggling to rip themselves free of the floor and whatever bound them to the earth. But those arms, long, sinuous, branches of oozing life that reached for me kept on calling to me in their siren's call. One of the queens was focusing on me, while the other fondled my brother with her branches and the fronds of her crown. I gagged as I saw him surrender to her, 
tremble and cry out in pleasure. All I wanted to do was run into those arms and die, to become part of their bark and sap, to be lifted up to the heavens in those branches as an offering to even more hideous gods than these, or crushed into the cavern floor as worthless dirt. It didn't matter. Whatever those goddesses wanted, I wanted it too, more than anything I'd ever wanted in my life. But it was those eyes that kept me from it, kept me root-bound where I stood. Large, blinking, opalescent pools opened slowly in the trunks of the queens. Large, sightless eyes that probed at me, tried to suck the soul clean out of me. I'd forgotten my so-called brother watching the spectacle from the other wall, but his demented laughter broke through my ecstasy like an obsidian dagger, and I staggered back, my head clearing as what was building within me from my deepest core regained its claim on me. Whatever I was before I even was, it was this blackness. I'd tasted it before with the geezers. It was part of me, and I knew something else. This blackness was nothing I commanded up like the other sendings and calling forths that were the tricks of my trade. This was pure, full-on crow magic from the before times, and it was as much everything else and everybody besides me as it was old Frank Enfield himself. Do not resist, brother! Look at them! Their beauty and power drown in those eyes! What could be more destined than two queens, two immortal sisters for two immortal brothers? Embrace her, your queen, as I have done mine! Give yourself to her and embrace me! I knew then what my next move was. I charged through the muck across the floor, splashing through the flailing arms and screams of the chess pieces as they sought to break free of the cavern floor. I think he mistook my meaning, because my brother smiled at me and opened his arms. He was right about that much. I was running to embrace him for the first time, and last time in our lives. We met in the center of the chasm floor like two colliding steam engines, and I grinned right into his face. He grimaced in shock and horror as I opened my belly and let forth not the light, but the darkness that was before the light ever got told to shine. It sprayed him like a geyser, and I knew it was going to swallow everything there was here. To be on the safe side, though, I knew that whatever else my brother was, he was still some kind of man, or at least had been long ago. I pulled out my colt, and without so much as a buy or leave, shoved the business end into his mouth and pulled the trigger. He never got a chance to utter even one last foul word. I felt nothing as I saw his brains splatter across the cave wall behind us. I watched as he collapsed and slid to the floor. And then so did I, as the blackness swallowed the world, and I blinked out like some tiny, lonely star in the midst of all that darkness. Not sure how much later I woke up with the shakes real bad and choking for air. I was lying outside in the snow next to that first body I'd come across. The place was dead silent, but I figured things were still brewing down below, whether my brother was needed at this point or not. I wasn't taking any chances on whether whatever hell had opened up down there closed back up when my brother... I realized then I'd never even gotten his name. He'd never offered one, and I'd never asked. I figured that was just as well. Then I did the only thing I could think of to cap the place off. I pulled out Coyote's shade from my back pocket, not even sure if this would work or not. 
Not sure if coyote magic was that big, but having a sense that it was, and bigger even than that. I snapped the shade full open in the cold night air and saw it grow bigger and bigger. The castle rose in front of me, and I could see it was the exact configuration of the rooks down below, only it was a burned-out, half-collapsed ruin, its turrets and towers nothing but jagged fingers of rock pointing defiantly towards the heavens. I flung the coyote shade as best I could at the ruins, and it tore out of my hands and expanded to conceal the whole castle and most of the night sky. Then it was gone, along with the shade. Gone forever, I hoped, into those between spaces, the lines that only coyote travels on. As I stood there watching, making sure the last of the place was gone, disappeared completely from this world. Something dropped from the sky and landed on the ground where the castle had been, glowing red and smoking hot, steam filling the air where it cooled in the snow. I walked up and looked down. It looked like a piece of a meteor, such as I had seen one time when Martine dragged me to one of her museums. I kicked snow over the thing until it turned black and cooled enough for me to pick it up. What it was almost brought a smile to my lips. It was a little rook, exactly like those below, and a tiny replica of the castle itself. I squeezed it in my hand and shoved it into my pocket. Then I retraced my steps back to friendlier places. I finished my tale and looked at my two companions. For a moment they just stared at me. Then Martine smiled and reached over and squeezed my hand. The librarian, though, he didn't smile, not even when I took out the little black rook and put it in his hand. He just got up and poured himself another glass of something, and another, and then handed it to Martine, leaving me sitting there thirsty and not liking the tone of the room. Mr. Enfield? The librarian paused and glared at me. I hated it when he used my legal moniker like that. It put me in mind of the bygone days when I was still a few cans short of a six-pack around here and half expected to get the old heave-ho any minute. Whatever am I to do with you? Martine winced, but she didn't utter a peep. Then the librarian continued, his voice silky smooth again as he smiled at my girl. Miss Saint Laurent? Would you be so kind as to leave your gentleman friend and I to discuss an important business matter in private? Perhaps go to the hotel to book a table for dinner. I'm sure we'll be concluded soon enough, and he'll be along shortly. Martine just looked at us. Then, with a sharp nod, she picked up her purse and was out the door. The librarian just stared right through me like I was a pane of dirty glass cracked and jimmied open once too often. That's a very good analogy, Mr. Enfield. Jimmied open once too often. I didn't even bother to marvel at how he knew what I was thinking. Hell, it may have been him who put the notion in my head in the first place. So, what have you brought me for my collection? Just that, I muttered, gesturing to the rook in his hand. The little blackened thing, cracked and crumbling in his hand. That was the rook. And once again, it was old Frankie Boy himself who was the folly. The librarian knew everything that happened over there before I even told him, knew more about it than me, and somehow I wasn't feeling so hot about my place in things right now. I suppose this will have to do then. Yes, this will do nicely. Thank you. 
The librarian put the rook in the glass case where he kept all the small, dark treasures in his hoard. The cursed amulets and virulent rings, the scarabs and hex charms, the magic locks and haunted hairpins, and a thousand other little bits and bobs that had done more hurt and harm in the world than a thousand armies in wartime. He laid the thing on a little velvet pillow, and then pressed it gently before closing and locking the case. He muttered some words over the lock as he snapped it shut, but I couldn't make out what it was, and didn't ask. I fear you have not learned as much from your wanderings on my behalf as I had hoped you would. Ah, come on now. What do you mean by that? You dispatched your brother Carl with clarity and purpose and without lengthy preamble. I will give you that, Mr. Enfield. Most admirable. Well done. Most men would have hesitated, sought some feeble reason to stay their hand, any excuse to grant clemency and forgiveness for crimes beyond redemption because of vague notion of familial ties, regardless of how tenuous and newly disclosed those ties may be. Oh, and yes, there are indeed crimes that lay well beyond redemption, crimes that transform the criminal forever beyond the pale of natural men and their peaceful, ordered societies. Oh, and what about me? Am I not forever beyond the pale of natural men thanks to you? Just so, indeed. I took your life and made you a creature such as myself. I did this act without premeditation or regret. He glared at me with such defiance, I leaned back into the couch like it was an escape route. All I managed to get out was, why? Why? Because it was the only thing to be done to save your miserable life, your real life, to save the Frank Enfield I have admittedly grown accustomed to. Besides, I did not wish to bother to find, procure, and train a new protege. What the crows did to you out there... He waved his hand in a vague gesture. Without my knowledge, all counsel would have destroyed you forever, Frank Enfield, and left nothing in this world to note his passing. I just sat there, sunk into the sofa, my mind reeling. But, no, they're my... The geezers are my... Your what? You think that they are your friends? Clearly I have taught you nothing, nothing whatsoever if you will persist in believing that everything in this universe is either friend or foe, good or bad, to be trusted or not. But they're your friends. You must know what they are. Who they are. No, Mr. Enfield. No. I do not have the slightest notion what they are. They are merely my allies, and I deal with them very carefully. Once you cross certain Rubicons of reality, as it were, you catch the attention of many things that are outside the silly dualities upon which we rely to make our way in the world. By taking you to the before times outside of the world, outside of the universe, they destroyed your flesh and blood, your meat and bones, and they did not care because why? Because what they know you to be, beyond appearances, it has no use for meat and blood and flesh. You have no need for meat and blood and flesh. But our friend Frank Enfield, as long as he is merely the man Frank Enfield, he does have need of those things.
I, for many reasons of my own, wished to save that Frank Enfield. So I made him something as like unto myself. It was the only way, and there you have it. I am half a mind to let Miss St. Laurent pack you up and take you back to New Orleans. See what Samity can do with you. Perhaps he would have better luck with your education than I have. He turned to me with a look on his face I'd never seen before. But there is more, so much more, that leads me to this moment. Why on earth, Mr. Enfield, did you use Coyote's shade in the way you did? Why unleash his full power in such a way? Can you be so much the bumbling fool as to think that any being of pure power gives you is to fully be understood by you? Jin, witches, hexmen, and juju bosses, who cares? They are men or something like unto a man. But the geezers and coyote, they are not men. They have no connection to the world of men and do not care about mankind. Let me tell you something about old man Coyote. He'll be the best friend you ever had, right up until the moment he tips you over the edge into the abyss of non-existence for a laugh, and forgets you ever existed the next day, and then wonder where you got off to the week after that, and want to share a bottle of hooch and a smoke. That shade of his, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, Mr. Enfield. That's not just some silly hex wand or rag doll. It's a piece of raw power that was cut whole out of the fabric of no place you ever want to know about wearing flesh and bones. You want to keep at what we're doing, you need to get square, once and for all, with what's on the table and what's off the table and behave accordingly. You have two eyes to see with, get a third and a fourth. Then maybe you can be trusted to learn something beyond conjuring tricks and tarot cards. Then why did you put me... Well, I'll say it straight. Why did you put me in harm's way with Coyote, with the geezers, without some kind of warning? At that, the librarian smiled for the first time since I'd come down to his lair with my strange tale of Rook's folly. Why, indeed, Mr. Enfield. <laughs> Why, indeed. And then he laughed long and hard, like he always did, when I had one foot on the great banana peel of the cosmos, and the other in my own damn grave. <laughs>